Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is a very uh, special individual who has done some pretty incredible things. Uh, so joining me today is Chris Sparks. And Chris Sparks, is a, he's a business coach for top-performing entrepreneurs, uh, helping them build the systems and habits to maximize their time, energy, and focus towards building their business and designing their personal lives. So basically, he focuses in a lot on productivity. He regularly writes about personal effectiveness and transformation on his blog and leads workshops to organizations about productivity. He's a former professional poker player and was ranked as one of the top 20 online poker players in the world for a few years. As a growth marketer, he's successfully helped several early stage startups reach scale through analytical optimization and cross-channel customer development. In his spare time, he also loves traveling and improv comedy, visiting 65 countries and performing regularly at the Magnet Theater in New York City. So today we are going to talk a little bit we're going to talk about a little, little bit about his time in poker, but we're really going to focus in on productivity and being consistent in taking action on what matters most in our life. So Chris has spent a lot of time and a lot of research and a lot of education around productivity and has has really done an incredible job of mapping out and laying out exactly how through the means of psychology, sociology, anthropology, neuroscience, complexity futurism, philosophy. He's really studied all of these avenues to better understand how we as human beings can be more productive on our, in our day-to-day -day life and how we can set up appropriate systems to, to have that productivity be effective and be consistent. And now if you're anything like me, this is something that I have definitely struggled with in the past uh, and still do sometimes today. I've noticed that when things are out of alignment with my priorities, with, with my purpose, it's very challenging to get them done. I also hear a lot of people saying, Connor, can you please do a podcast on time management? Can you please help me manage my time more effectively? Um, but the reality is, is that it's not time that we need to be managing. So one of the things that we dive into is how to manage your priorities, how to put things in order, uh, of, of making sure that we're doing the right things first. And Chris lays out a little bit of his system uh, that he uses, which is called Inflection Point, and it's the ultimate guide to productivity. So we talk a little bit about some of those uh, cornerstone pieces. So before I bring Chris on, just a quick reminder to all the guys that are listening, uh, please head on over to Facebook, join the Man Talks community. Uh, we've got a few thousand guys in there and we have some great conversations. We currently have a challenge going on. Uh, about 90 to 100 of the guys have joined me in a no drinking challenge for 60 days. So that's pretty awesome. Uh, and we also have some fitness challenges going on in there. So, so definitely head on over to Facebook and join us there. And uh, my last uh, ask. I don't ask for a lot, uh, but my ask, my last ask is please share this podcast with one person, man it forward, share the podcast with one person, especially if you know that they're struggling with productivity um, or, or you just think that this would be a good lesson for them. 
Uh, it goes a long way to getting us into the ears and onto the phones of other people. And uh, don't forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts and uh, and leave us a review. Uh, it definitely helps us in a long, long way. So thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in today. And without any further delay, please welcome Chris Sparks. Thanks, Connor. It's great to be here. So just like with the rest of our guests, I want to kick things off today with asking you the question. Are you ready? All right. Yeah, that's good. All right. So tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. So I usually think that the best answer to these type of questions is the first answer. First answer I came up with, I was sitting in a bungalow on a beach in Thailand. It's always been a bucket list item for me to travel the world. And a three-month trip had uh, turned into an 18-month trip at this point, uh, visiting 50 countries. This Right now, I've kind of been uh, beach bumming with no no forward plan in Thailand. And I had uh, played poker professionally for five years, uh, more or less until the, the government put it to an end in the U.S. in 2011. And this is three years later at this point, 2014. A large amount of my net worth had been seized by the government. And I had more or less decided that I would not see that money again, or at least like come to terms with that possibility. And one day I opened my bank account and the whole lump sum that I assumed was gone got deposited in my bank account. Now, um, for those of you guys who have been uh, traveling in Southeast Asia, there's a nice currency arbitrage there, so the cost of living is quite low. And I did a, some quick mental calculations and found out that with what I was currently spending per day in Thailand, I could live like a king for the rest of my life with the amount that had hit my bank account for that day. And it was the first time that this possibility of just living a life of adventure and leisure became a legitimate option I had to consider. I think up until this point, a lot of my life was geared around what do I want to accomplish? What do I want to experience? Um, what kind of impact do I want to have? I really cue into this idea of doing impact without thinking about what you actually want to uh, contribute to. And having been faced with this first, for the first time, this option of I can just live a completely self-indulgent life of happiness and doing whatever I want the rest of my life. Is this what I want? And realizing that it wasn't, that I would kind of consider that a cop-out and the kind of an escapist failure. So that sort of became my journey towards how can I make the most of the experiences and the gifts that I had um, been given and acquired along the way, and how could I live a life that was a bit more meaningful than that. I love it, man. That's <laughs> it's so uh, it's so interesting to hear you talk about you know the this perspective of what happens when you know, all of a sudden you realize that it's almost like your needs, you know, your financial needs are taken care of for the rest of your life. I think very few people have that opportunity to just sit in the space of like, well, what if I didn't have to do anything just for money for the rest of my life? Then then what do I do? Then what do I focus in on? And uh, I think that's such a unique experience to find yourself in. So, uh, so in that space, like, what what were you left with? Like, if you could just do anything and and sort of live in any way that you wanted, did you did you sort of contemplate 
just piecing out from life and living the rest of your life in Thailand? Like, did that ever cross your mind? So it did. I, I'm, I'm always trying to extrapolate out. Um, I mean, I think all of life is kind of like poker making decisions with incomplete information. And it's how would I feel on my deathbed having lived that that kind of most interesting man in the world type lifestyle? And then it's, okay, how, how could I change that narrative to be something that I'm more satisfied and fulfilled with? Um, I think that I think that people confuse happiness and fulfillment a lot, that they think they're pursuing one and they're really pursuing the other, that, uh, that success really comes in an oscillation between the two. And then I wanted to increase my utility function to wait a little bit more towards fulfillment. I think up until that point, I had been living a life uh, based out of fear. So fear out of these are the things that I don't want. And how can I run away as far as I can from the things that I don't want? So I don't want to be working at a big company for a boss. Uh, I don't want to be answering to others. I don't want to be stuck in one place with the same people doing the same things. I don't want to be, you know, fixing up my house with a picket fence and two dogs uh, the rest of my life. And how can I get as far away so that those options don't become part of my, you know, timeline uh, possibility? And I tried to shift my mindset towards what do I what do I actually want? And the list got pretty short. I basically came up with I wanted to work with people who were smart, interesting, and doing ambitious things to try to change the world. Up until that point, I mean, my life was basically going into the corporate world and then shifting completely and going into poker. So the few people I knew who fit that description were entrepreneurs. So my new kind of modus operandi became, how can I work closely with entrepreneurs? And just drawing from that led to me to my next few decisions, which is moving to New York, where it felt like they had the largest concentration of those kind of people. Um, going into startup consulting, first in analytics, um, then doing some venture capital stuff. Now when I'm doing you know, productivity country for entrepreneurs, how can I work closely with those people, help them realize their goals and utilize my unique abilities um, in a high leverage way. But it, it all started from that shift from, okay, let's rather than just running away from the things I don't want, how can I make sure that I'm getting the things that I do want and building up from there? Mm. Yeah, I really like that. And I mean, it's interesting because the, the deathbed thought, you know, kind of saying, if I was to be on my deathbed, and I sort of lived out the life that I see myself living out can be a really powerful shift for a lot of people, because all of a sudden, you get to a, a very rare chance to sort of play the what if game, and sort of live out the path and the trajectory that you have your life on, and see whether or not that's actually who you want to be and and what you want to do. And I love that you you did that exercise and took a step back and said, maybe that's not it. Uh, maybe I can take my life in this direction. So, and we're going to touch on productivity in in a bit because I want to definitely um, get into that because I think that productivity and consistency around our productivity is something that so many people. Uh, battle on a daily basis. And there's so much information out there. So I'm definitely curious to get your insight on that. But I want to circle back around to the poker life first, because I think your transition from, you know, the corporate realm into poker is, is so interesting where you're so used to getting that, you know, 
bi-monthly or bi-weekly paycheck uh, coming coming in. You've got like I call it the golden handcuffs. I used to work at Apple, so I've you know I've experienced that. How did you shift, and how did you know when to transition? out of that corporate world and into doing poker on a full-time basis? Uh, the, the, super, the super short answer is I didn't. And I was really lucky to be kind of forced out in, by default. The, the longer story answer, it had been my dream while I was in college to make television commercials. Uh, I'd always been really fascinated by human psychology. And it seemed like if you know society is telling me I need to run a business, um, and I want to work in psychology, that marketing was the way to go. And where is the most creativity happening in marketing is, is creating these, these commercials that can affect people on a large scale, kind of really tie into these emotional universals. And where are the places that TV commercials being made? It's places with multi-million dollar budgets to make TV commercials. So um, my internships through college and then my job that I accepted um, after senior year, um, partially through the luck of being on a reality show my senior year in college, I, I got accepted a job with Ford in Detroit. And this is 2008. So the, the months before I was supposed to start uh, my full-time job, uh, the auto industry collapses and I find myself in hiring purgatory. So I'd already moved up to Detroit. I knew some total of two people in Detroit who both worked at Ford. Uh, I have nothing to do all day. I just graduated college and I'm kind of waiting for this job to kick in. Basically, the government telling Ford that they can start hiring again. Um, I'd played poker throughout college to, I was paying my own tuition. So it was an easy way to pay off tuition before I graduated, plus something that I really, really enjoyed. And okay, well, I'm not making money working at Ford. Why don't I make money playing poker in the meantime? So this kind of 10 to 15 hour a week habit became a 80 hour a week full-time obsession. And by the time came around, it became realistic to join Ford. It's just economically infeasible to go to a full-time company when I'm working on my own, making my own hours, making multiples of that per month. So, yeah, the short answer is I might still be in the corporate world if it wasn't for the bad luck of entering into the job market in 2008, which ended up being a very lucky occurrence in hindsight. And I find that so many occurrences are like that. Things that we think are fortunate turn out to be the opposite. And more often, things that we think are unlucky end up being the constraints that lead us to come up with a better solution. Hmm. That's awesome. That's really cool, man. I, I love how sometimes life just just uh, deals us the cards that sort of forces us to to take a shift, you know, <laughs> and and provides us provides us with the ability to do so. So, uh, as you transitioned into into poker, what was that world like? Because you you sort of specialize in the online poker side of things. Is that is that correct? You didn't you weren't really like big into the in person scene. Is there a reason for that? Yeah, I think uh, so. The the practical reason is in person you're getting a maximum of twenty to twenty five hands per hour. But at the time, I'm playing depending on the stakes, anywhere from 12 to 30 games at a time. So I'm getting multiple thousands of hands per hour. So my earn rate is uh, doing some, some quick math uh, up to 100x if my um, win rate is the same. 
So generally, when you're playing in person, you have more context. Uh, the players aren't as good. So maybe you can make five times as much, but it takes so much longer to realize your expectation, not to mention being incredibly boring. Whereas when you're online, the feedback cycles are so tight, you're getting your assumptions tested these thousands of times per hour. You can improve so much faster and becomes very difficult to have a losing month when you're improving so quickly. Uh, I think it is also kind of a skill match thing. I do really well with statistics and psychology. I think the amount of information, particularly at the time that was available on your opponents was massive. And there were a few people who are really taking advantage of doing that, that deep dive. Uh, so it really fit my skill set. And I mean, not to mention the ability to, you know, sit in your bedroom in your pajamas, the, the convenience is just unparalleled. So it, it created a very interesting atmosphere and in that my best friends in the world are people who I've never met. It's, you know, I'm talking on to them on AIM, uh, AOL Instant Messenger every day. Um, I eventually end up meeting them in Vegas for my 21st birthday, where, you know, we get a mansion for the summer and just bet on every single thing for the whole summer. It's, it's imagine kind of the movie 21, except for everyone is incredibly nerdy and has more money than they've ever known to do with. And because the way you're making the money requires you to have no attachment to it, you basically treat it like it's limitless. And that's kind of what it was like when a few of us got together. We weren't, you know, huddled in our basements with all the lights off trying to make more. <laughs> that's awesome. It sounds like uh, the, the best iteration possible for guys that love Dungeons and Dragons, you know, in, in like high school <laughs> to be able to to like go, go on to to poker uh just the way you described it so that, that's that's pretty funny but also i think one of the interesting things that you just said was around skill matching and i think that that is in in a lot of ways i would imagine that it not only helps your productivity you know because you're matching your skills but i would imagine that it also plays a huge factor into the reward risk equation and so everything that we do has an inherent risk, but the rewards can oftentimes uh, outweigh them. And that's what usually propels us forward into wanting to accomplish or, or pursue something. And so I would imagine that when you did align the, your, your skill sets and, and you match them up, I would imagine that it started to, to help incentivize and inspire you towards taking action. So is that something that you stumbled across was, was being able to match up your skills um, that that rewarded you was that just something that you you uncovered or stumbled across, or is that something that you inherently were pursuing already? Oh, you're, you're touching on a few of my favorite topics of mental models, Connor. This is awesome. So the first one, I think, the biggest thing in poker that determines who makes the most money is who can be at the right right table. So are you getting into the best games that are matched for your playing style and ideally against competition that you can beat? And I think the same thing applies in life is, are you putting yourself at the right table? Are you in the right industry? Are you, in, do you kind of satisfy that Venn diagram of something that you're good at that comes naturally that people value? Are you in a place that you can capitalize on opportunity? So much of poker is just extreme amounts of boredom and being disciplined and not, not changing your overall game plan 
and, and but recognizing when that like millisecond of opportunity appears right before your face and capturing that. And that's kind of being the difference is who can be disciplined and wait. Sort of this Warren Buffett, you only have 20 best in your life idea, recognizing the right opportunity and seizing it within that moment. And as you talk about that with risk taking, everything we do in life is a calculated risk. Um, if I could pass on one mental model that poker players love, it's this idea of expected value is what are you investing? And this could be in a literal sense in terms of money, but anything we think of a resource, it could be your time, your focus, your energy, what are you investing? And then what is your expected return? So in poker, I was winning about 52% of the time. So that 4% delta between the 52, 48 multiplied out over millions of hands. That's what allows you to make millions of dollars. The edges are very small, but it's recognizing when the odds are in your favor and putting the chips forward with the understanding in the long run that the results will follow. And the same thing happens knowing where the risk-reward quotient is in your favor and having the confidence in yourself to recognize that and to put the chips forward. And that these compounding gains are what allow you to basically leave the field behind because you're taking those small edges in a calculated way, you're not putting too much at risk, but those those gains compound over time. And every the winners accumulate more, which allows them to reinvest. Um, you pull away from the field. So yeah, I mean, I could go on about this forever, but it's, it's that key idea of knowing where is the right place to be, recognizing those opportunities and putting yourself in a position to implement them really mm, I love that, man. I think that that's so important. It's, I mean, it's interesting because I've, you know, recently I was just listening to Ray Dalio's book, Principles. And I think that one of the things that you're touching on is somewhat similar, like you're, you're giving a very different example, obviously, but it's somewhat similar to what he was talking about in terms of stock investment in and looking at the, the risk and the reward and being able to not necessarily like, I guess, calculate it out, but, you know, being able to look at the long-term investment of what you're putting in and really taking a hard look at the truth of whether or not that's going to yield you the return that you're actually looking for. And I like that from a career perspective, from a, you know, business perspective, whether you're an entrepreneur or, or a professional, and even in terms of like relationships, I think that that's probably applicable uh, for those of us that are very analytical. Do you see that, that, this principle that you're talking about is applicable to all aspects of life? I definitely think so. I think that there's there's two aspects of it. So with the decisions, you have your kind of automatic, internalized, system one, habitual type decisions, which is you you react. You use your accumulated experience to guide your intuition. You assume that everything that is stored within your stored within your unconscious is leading you in the right direction and you follow that. Then you have the system two, I want to think, how do I want to make these type of decisions in the future? Um, what type of criteria should I be using? What are my values? Um, what should I be looking for in terms of decision criteria? Taking that step back to the meta level as far as how would I like to be making these decisions in the future? Um, what, what should I be thinking about when I do those? That both could be when you have a large decision at one of these inflection points, but also for a decision that comes up hundreds of times throughout the day, those gains compound if you can make a small change in those approach to decisions. 
And what I like about the approach that they have at Bridgewater is how do you codify these principles so that every decision has an easy litmus test and you take human um, emotion out of it, that the hard work comes in codifying these values and principles that inform your regular decisions so that these decisions are become very easy because the hard work has already been done. I think it applies um, to I think it applies to everything. I think some aspects is there's there's definitely a balance that needs to happen. I remember one time I got um, I got told by a friend, Chris, you're just so incredibly rational when it comes to making decisions about relationships. And I said, Oh, well, thank you. That's a really nice thing to say. They said, Well, no, that's that's not a compliment. Uh, I think sometimes we can overthink things and we can extrapolate out incorrectly. Uh, and I think there's other, there's, so there are times that you need to wait for more, for more information that you need to kind of trust your instincts a little bit more and don't, you know, overthink it. But I think, I think overall, the more that you can do the hard work, you know, off the table, so to say, whether that's in business or in life, you can trust your intuition in these in these spots a lot better. Yeah, that's great, and I love that you brought intuition into it because I do think that that plays a huge a huge factor, uh, even when it comes to these principles. I I actually am curious as to I'm just going to keep using the the poker analogies because it's so it's such a great uh, such a great tool, but I'm curious as to how this might play into knowing when to fold. And I'm not just talking about in the game of poker, but knowing when to fold in life uh, on a project, on a relationship, on, uh, you know, a business or like whatever it is. Because I think, you know, I'm not too sure if you're familiar with the sunk cost rule, but I think that a lot of people struggle with being able to know exactly when they should let go of something, when they should fold on something. And I'm curious to get your insight onto how you determined and how you built a sort of system around knowing when to fold, whether it was in poker or whether it was, you know, in life and, and learning when to walk away from something. Yeah, absolutely. I think the largest costs are always hidden. I think another hidden cost that people rarely have internalized is this idea of opportunity cost. That what you're doing right now, which hopefully is listening closely to this podcast, comes at the expense of literally everything else you could be doing. So what you're doing in this, in this very moment better be important. And the same thing kind of goes towards half-assing anything or constantly doubting what you're doing is the right thing, that that lack of commitment comes at the expense of what it could like if you actually committed. So I think this hidden cost of constantly doubting whether you're doing the right thing is the hidden cost that drives so much of what people consider to be productivity issues is that they lack conviction in what they do, um, myself included sometimes, and that leads to self-sabotage, that leads to an over-reliance on willpower, uh, that leads to doing things in a very inefficient way. So I think the way that I tackle this challenge that existential angst becomes an existential crisis is I try to treat everything as a closed experiment. So if I'm unsure what the right course of action is, like I said earlier, every decision is a decision using incomplete information. If you're waiting for complete information, you're waiting too long. 
I create an experiment where I say, okay, of the options that I could do, it looks like this one is the best one. I'm not sure it is, but I think it might be. So for the next 30, for the next 60, for the next 90 days, picking, picking a time interval, I'm going to act as if I'm 100% sure that this is the right thing to do. And I'm going to write out all of my assumptions. I'm, this is what I'm doing because I think this is true, because I think this is true, I think this is true. And during that period, I'm trying to test whether those assumptions are, are right. So at the end of the, so what that solves is that in the past, every single day, I'd be questioning like, well, writing this book is really useful, but maybe I could be doing something else instead. Uh, instead, I focused on writing that book for the full 30 days. And then at the end of the 30 days, okay, were these assumptions right? Is this something that I should continue doing? Should I double down? Should I pull back? But it gets rid of this daily questioning of, am I doing the right thing? And so when you create those closed experiments, those quit decisions become much easier and much more straightforward because you've created these checkpoints that you can go back and look back and reflect. So I think creating these heads down, pushing forward, testing assumptions, coupled with the yang of reflection, extracting lessons, moving forward, what should I be doing? I think that combination works really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that, man. I think that that's a really great insight in terms of supporting people to be able to look at when they need to let go. So uh, let's let's shift to let's shift to productivity because I think that it's it's something like I said, um, you know, obviously, you know, for the listeners that are out there, I, I think that they're starting to get a, a definite sense that this is something that you're definitely a, a, an expert in and know what you're talking about. I would love for you to just maybe unpack what you think good productivity looks and sounds. Actually, you know what? Let's start with the myths. What are some of the misconceptions and myths around productivity? Because I think that that would be good to tackle first. Yeah, I, I'm not even a big fan of the word productivity, despite using it as my title. I just haven't found a better one because I think with language, there's so many uh, so many fuzzy boundaries. And what I consider productivity is more Am I making progress on what I want to accomplish in my life in an efficient manner? And so I don't just attach that to, you know, did I create more widgets today? I, I really blur the line between life and work. And I think ideally they should be the same thing. So, uh, yeah, just, just kind of a, a starting point in that what I think of productivity is more of what is the best way to go about accomplishing this. And in that vein, I think the biggest time waste that people do is they treat productivity like an entertainment business. Everyone is out there looking for like the new system, the new tool, the new book that's going to completely transform their entire productivity baseline, let's say. But what they're missing is that they are the common denominator in all of their productivity issues. In fact, they are the productivity issues. So I really dial down on this inner game aspect of productivity, and I skew all of these shiny tools, productivity hacks that I think really riddle the internet atmosphere. So I think that there's, there's three ways that you could become more productive, right? One is working smarter. And so there's plenty of things on the internet that, that are out there as far as like, how can you be more efficient? How can you eliminate interruptions and distractions? That's all good. There's, okay, how can I work more? 
So put in more hours and that's, you know, energy management, that's increasing focus by doing things like Pomodoros, uh, basically extending the window with which you can be productive. Where I really dial in, because I think it's the highest leverage and the most overlooked, is am I working on the right thing? And the emotion that I really cue into is fear and trying to transform that fear into courage. So what I am most afraid of doing, what I feel the most resistance towards, is most likely the thing that is most important for me to do. And I operate off of a power law theory, which is that the most important thing that I could be doing is worth more than all the other things that I could be doing combined. So I'm always trying to figure out what's the most important thing that I could be doing right now and how can I create the space to make sure that that gets done. And in that frame, everything else that I could be doing, getting back to opportunity costs, becomes a distraction because it comes at the expense of that most important thing. So in a nutshell, I think what people are missing is not, okay, how can I get more done or how can I get more done in less time is am I doing the right things? And if not, how can I make sure that I'm doing the right thing? Mm, yeah, I like that. I mean, I, I like to say it's not about time management, it's about priority management. And I think, you know, really in a, in an essence for me, what landed for, for me, what landed from what you just said is like focus in on what matters most when it matters most and you'll get better results in terms of your productivity. So in terms of like how you break that down for people, can we go a little bit deeper and maybe uh, if you can share like, uh, I hate to say it, but like a best practice, because I think some people, like you said, there there's, there's an, uh, an inundation of information that's out there in terms of what people can do to actually be more productive and how they can, uh, you know, get their work set up. There's productivity planners, there's, you know, all these different tools. And I'm curious to get insight into, you know, where do you start? How do you start to map those things out? And obviously, uh, just before we go on, I just want to say to all the listeners that are out there, if you're wanting to, to dive into uh, some of Chris's work a little bit more, and you can check him out on Medium. Um, there's a, a he's got a, a great following on Medium, and he's got something called the Inflection Point, a practical guide for growth. And he's breaking that down. It's going to be launching a book later on this year around this content. So if you're wanting to dive into his work a little bit more, you can definitely go check that out. But Chris, in terms of where people should start outside of that and how they can start to break this down into into practical sense, where do you recommend that they start? Yeah. So. I always tell clients that if they take one habit away from our work together, it should be the weekly review. I think the the week period is, it works great for avoiding the myopia of, okay, what this is what I'm doing in the day. You can take a little bit of a step back, but it's also tactical enough as far as looking rationally at the constraints I have this week, all the things that I have to work around what time do I have and how can I make the most of that? How can I feel good about the week? And I, I kind of build my whole productivity practice around that weekly review. And there's, there's three critical questions that are part of every review, which is basically what went well, what didn't go well, what can I do differently? So the what went well is like celebrating the wins um, and always, okay, what made that go well? How can I do more of that? Uh, what didn't go well? So what didn't I accomplish that I had set out to do? What were the reasons for that? And what's one thing that I could do now to increase those chances in the future? 
everything is a gift or a lesson. So treating every failure as an opportunity to improve. And then what can I do differently? Given that this is the week, looking at the week ahead, what's one thing that I can do to ensure that this week is a good one, that it's better than the week previous? So asking those three questions, just sitting down, for me, it's like a half hour to an hour for the week. I think I get a 10x return on that time um, because it answers those two key questions of what are the important things to work on and when do I expect to get those done? And so getting back to, I love your idea of managing your priorities, thinking about your priorities on a more global level and looking at where your time is going. So I think of my where my time is going as a portfolio that needs to be rebalanced over time. I have a allocation in an ideal world that I'd like to be spending proportional time on my priorities. So the highest priority spending the most time and then proportionally down. But occasionally things are going to get out of balance and I'm going to be spending way too much time on my low priorities or things that aren't a priority at all. And rather than beating myself over it, I treat it like a financial portfolio and just take small steps to bring that time portfolio back into balance. So that part of that key habit for the weekly review is where was your time going for the last week and how would you like to that to change? And then the extra credit is what's one thing you could do now to help rebalance that portfolio. Mm, yeah, I like that. I, I like the idea of like a time time portfolio because I think that puts things into perspective for people and and allows them maybe to like let go of some of the guilt that we have oftentimes around have I been doing the right things or if we get off track or we get you know distracted by useless tasks or you know just doing all of the wrong things for a few days we can start to look at how do we actually rebalance that weekly portfolio of time and and makes it a little less emotionally charged I would I would imagine is that is that part of the reasoning around your your take on it Absolutely. I think with productivity, the tendency is to beat ourselves up that we have this idealized model of ourselves and we continually fall short. And rather than saying, wow, like when it was the day that I'm finally going to get my act together, it more treating our behavior as completely deterministic by the context that we put ourselves in. So what I mean by that is it wasn't that we failed to do what we set out to do is that we failed to create a context that what we wanted to do became inevitable. So my business, the forcing function is built around that. Uh, forcing function is how can I make what I want to do the default, putting some structure or accountability into place so that there's never any decision or willpower required to act. It just becomes the obvious thing to do. And it helps to step aside and not identify with your failures by saying, okay, how could I have changed my environment, my situation, my context to have made it more likely for that to happen? And you think of it as just something that you're continually approaching and you're removing failure modes over time so that like no week is ever a failure in itself. It's just, an, it's just learning. It's an opportunity to get better. Yeah, I think I think it's very important this this Buddhist concept of like being an objective observer of ourselves. I always try to think of it as what is the obvious advice that I would give to a friend if that friend was me or if I was reading a fiction book 
and I was the main character, what would be the thing I was saying? Like, wow, why, why, why aren't they doing that obvious thing? It's so hard to be objective about ourselves. And that's why we have to unidentify with our past behavior. Um, it's, it's this not having a personal history that the past needs to be set aside. It's just only our best guess at what we're going to do in the future, that our, our behavior can com- be completely altered by putting ourselves in a context that is more, more conducive to our goals. Yeah, man, that's, it's so powerful. You know, I love that concept, uh, the Buddhist concept of, of being the observer and sort of removing ourselves and looking objectively and then being able to almost like elicit advice for ourselves. I, I remember I, like just the other day, I was working with a client and he's, you know, a very successful guy, incredibly smart, runs, runs a few companies and he was really stuck in one area of his life. And I was like, you know, he was asking me, what do you think I should do? And, you know, as a, as a coach or as a therapist, you never really want to say like, well, this is what I think you should do with your multimillion dollar business, because then you could be liable for, for, for the, you know, for the downfall, if anything goes wrong. And I said, if you, if you were your friend right now and, and you, you know, you unpack the situation, you sort of said exactly what was going on. What is the advice that you would give your friend? And it was so funny that in that moment, he was able to remove himself from the situation, become objective and know exactly what he what advice he would give to a friend and then could take that advice and implement that. It's so it's so interesting to hear you say that, because I think that's such a powerful tool. I'm curious in terms of productivity. How do you schedule in personal time? Like, is that all a part of it? Because I know that, you know, for you, you like doing some improv and you do some improv at the, uh, I think it's the Magnet Theater in in New York City uh, every once in a while. So is that part of it? Like, do you bring in those compete, those, uh, those, those pieces and, and those priorities into your prioritization and into your optimization when you're building your week? Or is it predominantly segregated into like different buckets of work and then, you know, extracurricular and then relationships? Like, how do you manage that part of it? Yeah, I think I think everyone is different. And I think it depends on your respective portfolio. For me, I like the approach of having really clear boundaries and delineations between work and leisure. As far as when I'm working, I want to be completely head down and focused on that. And when I'm um, hanging out with friends or doing something creative or reading, that that becomes my focus and I'm, I'm really present uh, and not thinking about work or thinking about what I'd rather be doing, but trying to maximize the presence that I bring to each of those. That's a way of creating time is by building the seconds within the minute that you're focused. I've worked with clients that I need to actually have them schedule in their leisure because if not, they'll work from 8 a.m. to 2 a.m. and never see their kids. Uh, I think that is that's an archetype of an entrepreneur, but it's probably not the most common one. I think the most common is how can I avoid all of these things that are relaxing but don't actually recharge me? And that becomes having a list of activities that you enjoy doing that are you can basically draw from that menu when you have free time. Um, and it becomes less friction to uncharge and unwind. And you can do it in a more productive way um, rather than like watching a movie or Netflix or playing video games. But you have options that you'll be more satisfied with in the future because they're, they're more accessible and they're more enriching. Uh, 
for for me, I, I never have a hard time taking time off work because I have things that make me feel really fulfilled um, that I can pursue that I really enjoy. And I, I think it's very, very important to have that balance. I, using the, uh, I'm probably pushing this portfolio analogy too far, but uh, I think that if you're overweighted in one area of your life, you become very fragile. If that area of your life isn't going well, it becomes, it becomes an emotional drain. So I try to have multiple burners on the stove going. So if one of them goes out, I have the others to lean on. So if I have a really tough day of coaching, I, I can talk to my friends. I can um, pursue one of my hobbies. If uh, I, ha I get into a big fight, I can really lean into my work with my clients and the fulfillment I get there. And those, those kind of become a scaffolding that support each other. And I think that happiness and fulfillment, they're supportive, but also counter to each other. And burnout comes if we expend ourselves too far on the side of purpose. It's happiness becomes something that can bring us in back moment that can give us more gratitude and appreciation for what we have. And that allows us to bring our full selves to our work. So, I mean, super long answer to a simple question, but I think about this stuff quite a lot. Uh, I think that you need both and it becomes an oscillation that this leisure and work, while they need to be sharply delineated, becomes supporting structures for each other and that you won't bring your full self to either if you don't have the other. Yeah, that's some really, really, really powerful insight, man. I think that that's... You know, <laughs> I love I love that you're talking about bringing the one to the other and and really having it be a both end situation and being able to look at your personal life and your professional life and and realize that it's all connected, all sides of the spectrum are connected, and you can't have success and fulfillment in one without being able to provide that on the other side. So, uh, just to wrap up here today because we're running out of time, where can people learn more about you, find more out about your work, where should they go? Sure, yeah, I appreciate the plug of the blog earlier. Um, I'm putting out chapters of my book, which will be published later this year, called Inflection Point, and that's on my Medium page, so Medium slash Sparks Remarks. Also my uh, social media handle. Uh, I don't spend as, as much time on social media these days as I'm trying to focus on deep work, but I'm happy to have... Um, deeper conversations about any of the things I've talked about. If you have questions or comments, um, please reach out. You can find me on Facebook or Twitter at Sparks Remarks. And uh, my website, if you're more interested in coaching, is theforcingfunction.com. Um, so email chris at theforcingfunction.com. And, yeah, this is a lot of fun. I love talking about this stuff. I could go on forever. Uh, it's, it's been an honor to be on the show and to share some of these lessons I've learned with, with you. Uh, if I could say, like, take one thing away from this is, I should have had an answer prepared before I started with that statement. I would say, know what your priorities are and constantly be working towards spending more time on them. Uh, treat every failure as a lesson and always be 
<laughs> awesome, man. Thank you so much. I, I think that's some really, really great wisdom and insight to end on. So for everybody out there, definitely go check out Chris Sparks. Uh, and We'll have all the links for you on the website to his Medium account and to his personal website. Uh, just a quick reminder to all the guys to head over to Facebook and join the Man Talks community. We've got a few thousand men in there from around the world. We have got some great conversations going on in there. Uh, so whether you are focusing on health, fitness, finance, fatherhood, whatever that looks like, definitely go check that out. And please don't forget to leave us a rating and review. It goes a long, long way to getting us on the phones and into the ears of the people. And lastly, don't forget, don't hesitate to hashtag man it forward to somebody else. Share this episode with one person that you know has struggled with productivity, has really been uh, struggling with consistency in some way, shape, or form in their life, or is just looking to integrate a more healthy sense of productivity. Because I think that, uh, you know, Chris had a lot to offer in this space that, that will definitely be serving people. So until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Yeah.